Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 42, and we're going to read once again through verse 47. But before we do that, I just want to again kind of set a uh, context of what we're going to work through today. How many of you love God's Word? What we have been doing in the times that we've been here, outside of a few interruptions, because we've just tried to obey some of the leading of the Spirit on words that I just felt were, were words that He wanted to give to this body. But I've been teaching a series, even though it's been interrupted, it has been a series called Recapturing the Church's Lost Identity. And we started out in Ephesians 5, and we talked about how the church can become ageless, how she can become forever young. And we talked about how that Paul, in Ephesians 5, he was using the natural example of marriage, but then he made spiritual implications about the example of earthly marriage, having a a, a prophetic type of a greater marriage relationship that we have between the bridegroom king Christ and his church. And he uses the description of how Jesus just cleanses, purifies, and revitalizes the church with the washing of his word. And uh, very quickly, I just want to restate that point to lay the foundation of it. Jesus talked about the removal of external dirt and filth that was contaminating the body. And that was one of the words that he used to describe why he washes and cleanses his church. But then it talks about the removal of every spot and blemish. And only one of those three terms that is used there to describe what the word does when it, when it impacts the bride, one of them was to purify her of external uncleanliness. The other two terms, and we discussed that at great length, taught at great length, Uh, implies that the washing of the word not just cleanses, but revitalizes a youthfulness. That her wrinkles are not a thing of wrinkles upon her garment, that the condition of her uh, natural appearance because of garments is somehow she's not ready, but it's talking about her appearance of age. And so I just thought that was a beautiful picture of the Lord cleansing the church but renewing the church and keeping her forever young. And so the key phrase that I've used repeatedly in this this series is I said, if that is true, that the Lord preserves the church in youthful, fruitful vitality, then the church that he comes back for at the end of the church age will look in appearance much the same way the church looked in the book of Acts. And so what I did was I said, then we've got to go to the book of Acts. We've got to see in the very youth of the church, the very beginnings of the church, uh, the inception of the church, when the church was first brought into that place of vitality and fruitfulness. We've got to see the essential elements of what the church was engaged in, where she was engaging her heart. How was she engaging God and how was God engaging her uh, and, and what were those essential elements in which the Lord could wash her by the word, by which the Lord could empower her and pour out her spirit upon her and fill her and renew her to keep her in that place of vitality and fruitfulness. And we just said that Acts chapter 2, verse 42, kind of is that secret elixir, <laughs> those essential elements That place where God met with his people in her very youth and renewed her and kept her in a place of fruitful multiplication. And so I want to read that once again. And what I'm going to do this morning, and if they put this upon the slide, I know there are various translations that are used by believers today. So there are going to be people that have, uh, you know, King James, New King James, NIV, There are numerous translations that are going to be out there, Living Bible, Amplified Bibles. 
But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this passage of Scripture from the English Standard Version. And I asked the guys if they could put up the English Standard Version as well, because I believe it's important for where we're going today, because we're going to talk about this phrase, uh, the fellowship. And uh, actually, I may need you to look up the ESVST, not just the English Standard. It's the English Standard Revised. Do you guys have the ESV? ESVST. Do you have that version? Okay, they don't have that version. Well, let's read it. And I'm going to read it out of the ES, the English Standard Version, but it is a, a new revised uh, standard version of the English translation. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and this is the contrast that I wanted to make. And it says, And the fellowship. Teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the reason why I want to make that clarity is because in the King James, New King James, the NIV, most of the other versions, and in this old version of the English, the term fellowship is used as a verb. And it says they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. In other words, it was an action that they were engaged in. It was something that they were doing. They were fellowshipping. They were sharing life together. There was exchange. There was this uh, communion that they were experiencing. However, when you go to the Greek New Testament, it is not used as a verb. It is used as a noun, the definitive article. And so this translation is the most correct translation of our English version and of the New Testament Greek. And so the way it should be read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, meaning it's not used as a verb, as an action, but it's used as a noun, and it describes not the action of the community, but it describes the community within itself. And so when it says the fellowship, the Lord is trying to delineate between other fellowships, other communities, other different types of groups that have gathered together for different causes throughout history. And there have been people that have collected together a collective of people, a community of people, a team of people, a fellowship of people, an army of people. You could use all sorts of metaphors to develop when people come together for common cause and common purpose. And sometimes it's for very noble purposes. Sometimes it's for very good purposes, even godly purposes. The nation of Israel itself was, a, was the fellowship in the Old Testament in which God chose for himself a very unique and a particular people. But in this passage, in the book of Acts, there has been the creation of a new community. There has been something that God has brought forth and brought to birth and created and established and declared and called forth and named by his name that is saying no matter whatever groups existed before, no matter whatever nations existed before, no, not, no matter whatever races existed before, of how people delineate themselves as a unique collection of people, I want, to, I want you to know there is something that I'm giving birth to that is the family of God. It is the unique fellowship of God created by God. And it's, again, origin is not an earthly origin where people come together, rally around a cause. This was in God's heart and mind from the foundations of the world. That he would call forth a people unto himself and he would say, I'm going to have a family of families, a nation of nations, a generation of generations, a tribe of all tribes. I'm going to establish something that I call the fellowship. 
And it is going to be a people that are called by my name. They are going to be uh, entered into a covenant with me that I have established with my son and invite them into partnership with me. But I am going to establish something that is unique that has never existed before. Now, I think it's very important that when we talk about the fellowship that there is a sense of exclusivity here. Uniqueness, yes. And that's what we want to talk about, the uniqueness, how it is the fellowship or the partnership or the family or the covenant family of God that makes us so unique. And there is a danger when you talk about exclusivity because when you talk about exclusivity, you're saying that some people belong and some people don't belong. And when you do that, there is this danger of pride where people say, I belong and you don't. That is the nature of the flesh that wants to say in pride, I'm something and you're nothing. But even though that danger exists, we still have to understand there are those that are a part today of something that is so unique, something that is so holy, something that is so precious, something that originates from eternity that was in God's heart and mind that God has marked a people for himself and that they are the called ones of God and that calling is upon some people and there are those that are outside of that call. And you say, well, can there be those that still respond to the call? I say yes, but my point is not saying some are and some are not. I'm saying that today, the reality, there are those that are exist inside the fellowship and there are those that exist outside of the fellowship. The calling extends to many. He wishes that none would perish. The invitation is to all to come. But there are few that will respond and will come and be a part of that called out community unto himself. And so even though there's the danger that we somehow get into a pitfall and saying, look at me, I'm a part of an elite group. We don't want to fall into that pitfall, but we also want us to understand that there is something about the people in this room. And I'm going to share for a couple weeks on this part. And next week we'll break out some practical things that I think that Pastor Eric is talking about, a friendship and fellowship. We'll talk about the action, the verb of what the fellowship does. But I, I felt that we would be negligent if we did not establish a foundation for why we are here today and what this gathering is all about. Because I think somehow in time we have lost the value and that sense of, you know, that sense of importance, that sense of weightiness, that sense of the awe of what we're about and who we are. And again, I'm not trying to fuel our heart with a pride that we walk out of here going, I am something. Because the only something that we can be is in the grace of God. But you are not here by accident. You are not here because somehow you had a felt need and that felt need had kind people talk to you and then somehow you, you made a decision where you accepted Christ and, and it's just been a whirlwind and you're, you found yourself by some cosmic accident here today. No, before the world began, God issued forth a call because of his foreknowledge. He knew where you would be and instead of pride, it overwhelms me with a, a sense of such awe and appreciation and thankfulness because I know where I was. I know where my family was. I know the condition of my human genealogy. I know the brokenness and I know the poverty and I know 
how that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, you know your calling, brethren, how that not many noble, not many royal, not many influential, not many wealthy, not many of people of importance has the invitation been offered to. But God has chosen the weak and the foolish and those that are considered those that the world would not choose, but God put forth a call upon you. Matter of fact, when I was preparing for this message, and I, one of the things I don't want to do is I'm not just talking about my family as an example, but my family is an example. It's an example of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, how the calling of God, the election of God based on foreknowledge. You need to understand I'm not teaching a, a theology where I'm saying God before time existed, said you're in and you're out. I'm talking that before time began, God could see the future. He would know the decisions that people would make and that predestination is determined based upon the foresight and the foreknowledge of God. And so God looks through the annals of time and he sees a family that meets what he calls a criteria of those that could receive a call. And he sees them in their weakness and he sees them in their foolishness. And he says, I'm going to make them a trophy of my grace. I'm going to make them a trophy of how I can take that which is nothing and I can make it something. I can take that which is relegated to to being insignificant, and I can make it a part of something so elite, so great, so special, so peculiar, that the nations of the earth will marvel as I adorn it and clothe it with my glory. Now I'm going to use just a couple examples from my family and my family tree and my family history, and every one of you, as I relate just a couple examples out of my family tree, most of you could also go back to your family tree of when the gospel began to come into your family, and you could relate to some of the same stories, and I guarantee you some of the same stories go back to a point in time of someone broken in your genealogy that was so desperate in need, and that God came to them and revealed his son, Christ Jesus. My grandfather was a veteran of World War I. And he was engaged in heavy combat in the Argonne Forest Campaign. And my grandfather related to his children that there was a period of time that moment by moment he despaired of life. It was that close, the combat, hand-to-hand. -hand. Matter of fact, for three days he was cut off behind enemy lines hid in a hollow tree that had been cut off by artillery, enemy soldiers walking all around him. He almost died of thirst in that tree, but their unit was totally overrun by a German charge. He had his best friend die right beside of him. He said he held his best friend in his arms as that young man said, all I wanted to do is return back home and to see my family. He said he died crying out for his mother. He said, I held that young man in his arm, my best friend. He said that, he despaired of life. He didn't believe he would live throughout the day. On many days, the combat was so heavy. Finally, at night, he crawled out of the tree, and he made it back to his lines, and he was afraid they would machine gun him before he could cross no man's land. But thank God, in that tree, he cried out to God. And he said, God. Now, can you, can you imagine? Because another descriptor he said was he said, that there was a point in the battle where I could not step on the ground without stepping on a human corpse. There were so many dead people around me. Now I tell you what, Psalms 91 is a very real reality when it says a thousand falls at your side and 10,000 can fall at the other, but it'll not come nigh you. Now in the midst of that brutality and that violence and that death, God put that young man, 20 years old, in the middle of that tree, surrounded by death, to cause him to respond to an invitation of grace based upon a calling, based upon the foreknowledge of God that says, I'm going 
I'm going to choose that little young man from Virginia that comes from humble beginnings and I'm going to have him call upon my name because I'm going to create an environment around him where he will respond to me. And I thank God that instead of him dying like the thousands around him did, that man said, God, if you will save me, I will serve you all the days of my life. Guess what? He kept that vow. And God saved him. They said that as soon as he returned home, one of the first actions that he did was on Sunday, he went down the altar. He went down to the altar and that was it. God had, had saved his life and spared his life. The other side of my family tree is my, my great-grandmother was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian. And both of her parents were killed for their farmland in North Carolina. They were robbed of their land. They were killed by people that were greedy for their farmland. And that put her as an orphan. But you know what? In the midst of that prejudice and that violence, where her own parents lost their life over their farmland, this orphan girl was taken in by a pastor and his wife. And there the gospel came to my great-grandmother. On my mom's side, there was a little young woman, and she just died a year and a half ago, 105, 106 years of age. But, and you know, sometimes things are kept hidden in family trees where we don't know. But I found out that my grandmother, Jarrett, was raped at 14 years of age. And as a result of that, she conceived and had a child. 14 years of age. But I thank God that that little young lady with a fourth grade education, barely knew how to read, went down to a Pentecostal holiness church in Lackey Holler, West Virginia. And she heard the gospel. And she responded. Now I want you to know, God comes to those people that seem to be so insignificant to everybody else. My grandfather was one of thousands of men that fought in World War I. But God, who is rich in mercy, spared his life. God, who is rich in mercy in the poverty of a 14-year-old girl raised in the Appalachian Mountains and became this mother of 12 children. Abject poverty. They didn't know they were poor. But by our standards, you look back upon their life and you go, they were the poor of the poor. But many of them, those families were rich in love. But I look at it. If we were going to try to make the family of all families, the nation of all nations, if, we, if today in human wisdom we could have the building blocks of the greatest minds to lay out the building blocks, if we were going to build the family of families, the community of communities, the greatest partnership that ever existed, the nation of nations, if we were going to build the best and the greatest, would we choose these building blocks? No, but God. I'm here today because they answered a call. And I, I look at that and go, it's amazing to me. That, that the gospel invasion occurred into their hearts, which allowed my parents to be exposed to the gospel, which allowed me to be exposed to the gospel. And in John 17, 6, Jesus said, Father, I thank you for those that you've given to me. But I realize that those that you've given to me, they, they existed, or he said, they were not mine originally, but they were yours. But you've just given me now the stewardship of them. But they were in your heart. And they were in your mind. Now I want you to just pause just for a moment. And let it be a moment where it can be a teaching moment. Where the Lord shows us the relevance and the importance and the significance of those that are in this room. I want us to just take a look around. And you, there are some people that you know Closely, intimately, personally, there are people that are acquaintance here, but I do. I want you to just take a look around and I want you to look at the faces of those that are here today. And if you would, I would just like you to ponder these people that you're sitting beside. 
Well, you just begin to say, I don't know maybe their history. I may know some of it. I may, not, I may know some of their story. I may know some of their testimony. But I don't know it all. Only God knows it all. Only God knows where he brought them, even generationally, where they were at when the gospel came into their family line in which God chose for himself a people unto himself. And I want you to know that right now you're sitting with the aristocracy of heaven. Contemplate that. Imagine it for a moment. Meditate on it. That in just the near future, we're all going to be in heaven. We're going to be home. We're going to be with Abba. We're going to be with Father. And he's going to tell us. And I don't know if he'll be able to show us, but he's going to be able to unveil many of the mysteries, many of the secrets, many of the things that we only know in part and see in part. And he's going to be able to let us see why he made the choice of us. He knew you. I guess that's the point I want to make today is he knew you. Before time ever began, he looked through the annals of time and he knew you. He contemplated. He meditated. He focused his intention upon you. And he began to say, that is the one that I'm going to set my love upon. I see where they come from. This one could die, but I'm going to save him. He'll live. And I will call him forth for my purpose. This one, other things, other choices could be made. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to issue forth an invitation. I'm going to woo their hearts. And I'm going to draw them unto me. And then I'm going to bestow upon them my glory and my grace and my mercy. I'm going to lavish it upon them. Because I think that sometimes, again, we can be a people that we lose sight of what we're called to. I want us to turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter. And we sang it this morning already in the chorus. But I want to read it again. And I want the words to sink deeply into our hearts and our spirit. I'm going to read out of the NIV. First Peter chapter 1. Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 9. Listen at these words. But you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a separate nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Turn to Romans chapter 8 quickly with me. Romans chapter 8. Paul in verse 28 gives the reason why he said in the previous verses why everything works together for the good for them that are called of God and called according to his purpose. As he says this in Romans 8:29, he said, For those God foreknew, he also predestined. 
And just a teaching point, I believe predestination is based on foreknowledge. To be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are four terms that are used in this passage that I think all of us need to have an understanding of what they mean. He said that he foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, and then it says that he glorified you. Very quickly, to foreknow means that he knew beforehand what he was going to do. And then it says he predestined you. It means that there was a predetermined destiny. And the way I like to describe that is he would allow you to share in Christ's destiny because what you're predestined unto is to be jointly conformed into the image of the Son of God. How many of you want to look exactly like Jesus? How many of you want to inherit exactly what Jesus is inheriting from his Father? And so he said, those that I foreknew, those that I intimately knew before time began, I determined that I would allow them to join in the destiny of my son. And I would call them and invite them (coughs) unto myself. But then I love this term that he says he called them. And it means to declare to one by name. The definition of that means there is an intimacy when he called you. And some people believe that the calling is just that God would have a large group of people, that he would have the church or that he would call, you know, a a large corporate group to himself and whoever by will chooses to be in that. Well, I believe there's a truth to that. He is called the church, but God is more particular than that. Do you believe that? He knew your name. He knew the number of the hair on your head or the lack of them. He knew the color of your eyes. He knew the height that you would be. He knew everything about you. And therefore, when he called you, he called you by your name. It also, that sense of calling means to receive a name. And I believe that as well. He called you by your name. But I also believe that he's called you to receive a greater name. It also means to bear a name. And how many of you know that that's how we invented surnames? Is that there was a family name that you became associated with and you began to be known as the son or the daughter of your surname. And how many of you know that the Bible tells us in Revelation that those that overcome, he's going to give them a new name. But also, I believe even now, we bear the surname of the name of Jesus, the name of Christ. Matter of fact, Paul in Corinthians, when he refers in one passage to Christ, he refers to it in a plural form, meaning that everybody who is in Christ and bears the name of Christ, is now called Christ, the anointed body. This may sound a little radical, but we joke with people and say, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a royal title. But I also want to know that you could also bear that same royal title. Eric Haler, the anointed. Why? Because you are a partaker of his glory. You're a partaker of his inheritance. And we know that the Bible says the spirit of God has been given to him without measure. So he is the anointed. And so what we think is we think, well... That's specifically something only for Jesus. I want you to know the Holy Spirit has been given to you. That same inheritance that he received from his father has now been given to you. You don't have 
a small, little, tiny Holy Spirit in you. And Jesus got the big one. You have received the Spirit without measure. So all of us here today in Christ share in that anointing. And so that title of being the anointed ones of God is something that you and I are called unto to bear that name. We are to carry that name. You go, that's awful heavy, Lynn. Yes, it is a heavy thing to carry. The anointing is a heavy thing to carry. But that's what you're called unto. That's why we're not here just to attend some nice little meeting and gathering and punch the clock and go back to our normal lives. This is the gathering of Christ today. This is the gathering of the anointed ones. And Jesus went on to say, and because of this calling and the uniqueness of it, the specialization of it, that's where when even two of you gather in my name, I will guarantee my endorsement of my personal presence there. When two or more convene a gathering of the anointed ones together, I guarantee you I will be in your midst. That's because he knows that kingdom legislative business can be transacted in those gatherings if we will only see the God-given birthright we have been given. So today, I sat with the royal family. And did you come into this gathering with a conscious awareness, with a renewed mind to think that the princes and the princesses of God, the aristocracy, the ruling class, I'm talking to people that will judge angels today. I'm talking about people that will be on thrones in the future. I'm talking about people that will rule nations. But for some reason, you have forgotten your birthright. You forgot that you are part of the family of all families. That at the end of time, that God would make a brand new humanity, a brand new man called a radical thing called a new creation, something never existed before, and that you would be by grace and by mercy brought in and placed through adoption into this family. The implications are huge. And that's right, and, and I'm going to stop because we'll go, get into that next week of the practical ways because the implications are huge. Because unless I, I get the definitive article, the fellowship, I will dumb it down to a fellowship potluck dinner. How can we make our potluck dinners more meaningful? You know, how can somehow we... Raise the bar of how we share with each other greater. How can we be nicer? And it, that's all important. I want everything that we do in word or deed to be done in the name of the Lord. And I want it to be more meaningful. But the way it becomes meaningful is the renewal and the transformation of our thinking for us to see our vocation, our calling, what we are called unto and what, who we are. And it doesn't start when I die. And then I get the revelation. Because I'm afraid that many of us are going to say, if I would have only have really gotten it, if I would have only known, I would have lived my life differently. I would have treated others differently. I would have walked among my brethren and my sisters in a different way. There, culturally, there would have been this thing of the culture of honor it would have become a preeminent thing instead of just this buzzword or fad that's based upon Danny Silk's book. 
it really would have become the kingdom culture of how we carried our life. And so then when I talk to Sandy, I don't understand Sandy after the flesh. I understand this is someone that has been called by God who is a daughter of Almighty God. Husbands, it will change the way you treat your wives. You're understanding that you go to bed at night with the daughter of Almighty God. Wives, it will cause you to respect and carry your heart differently with your husbands when you understand that he was God's son before he was your husband. It will change everything about how we relate to each other. And then the seriousness of what we're to be engaged in. And that's where we've got to elevate our game. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because the family of all families, the fellowship of all fellowships, the partnership of all partnerships, the gathering of all gatherings, its ultimate destiny is to partner with Jesus in seeing his kingdom established upon this earth. And he says this, he says, I'm going to build, and we'll get into this more next week, my kind of church, my kind of called out ones. And when this is over, and it may take several generations, but when this is over, I'm going to grow and I'm going to mature and I'm going to enrich them, and I'm going to empower them, and I'm going to clothe them, and I'm going to adorn them, and I'm going to finally get it into their heart and their mind that they are mine, saith the Lord, that they are called by my name to be for me. They belong to me. Their lives are no longer their own. I'm going to build them in such a way that they will prevail against the very, they will storm the very gates, the thresholds of death itself. They will overcome even as I have overcome. Wow. Where do we end that? We end by what Paul said to the Corinthian Christians. And probably we'll start there next week because that was a community that fell into chaos. As one preacher, I don't know if you guys ever listened to Mark Driscoll, but he did a series on uh, the Corinthian church and he called it The Church Gone Wild. Cute and clever title series. But there was a church that somehow was called out of darkness into such marvelous light. And just in a few years, they had devolved back to just being mere men. Did you hear what I said? Paul said that. He goes, you're behaving as mere human beings. And the flip side of that truth is that when they were brought into light... There was a destiny that was revealed to them that was told them, you are called for a higher purpose, a higher identity, a deeper destiny, not to just walk as a mere human being upon the earth. How many of you are ready to say, I'm ready to elevate my game? But first, the foundation is I've got to understand what it means to redeem the phrase to be a part of the church, to be a part of the family, to be a part of the fellowship, to be a part of the community. And I've talked about the privilege, but then with the privilege comes the weighty responsibility of to carry the treasure and the inheritance and the glory. Because you're not just foreknown. You're not just predestined. You're not just called. But guess what? He has glorified you. And the word glory, glorification, means that he's adorned and clothed and indwelled you. What are you stewarding right now? And with that stewardship, 
Are you able and involved in accomplishing the mission that God has sent you to accomplish on the earth? And so we want to talk about next week the stewardship of the fellowship. We've talked about the fellowship today, but next week we've got to talk about the stewardship. And all that that entails, not all because we'll never get out, but some of what it entails to where we change the trajectory. And uh, I'm trying to finish. It's 11.57. I'm going to race to the finish. I'm going to sprint to the finish. But let me just say this. I posed a question to the discipleship class last Thursday. And the question that I started the class out with was uh, we had, you know, pointed questions or relevant questions. And I said that if the church in North America could not meet in a corporate gathering on Sunday, what would happen? And so when we discussed that, I even became more pointed in asking the question. And I said, if New Covenant could not meet ever again on Sunday morning on West Western Road, what does your Christianity look like? Because most of North American Christianity, all it looks like is attending an event maybe possibly once a week. And I tell you what, when we talk about maybe, and I've talked about elevating the game, elevating our play, Christianity, is, it, there are events involved, but it is a shared lifestyle, and it's about the stewardship of relationship with God and with each other. And so I'm telling us today that we need to, and this was my challenge for the class Thursday, if we can, we have got to act as though some evil dictator took over our country and forbid Christians to meet on Sunday, even though we are going to continue to meet on Sunday, but act as if that dictator did so. To where it will force us to think, what should I be doing with my life spiritually? Because I'm a part of the fellowship. I'm a part of the family of all families. I'm a part of a new humanity. I'm a part of a royal family that exists, a royal nation that exists on the earth that is engaged in the mission of God. And I guarantee you, if we can get that shift in our thinking, and if we can begin to ask God to renew our thinking and renew our mind, all of a sudden, Monday is going to be more important. Tuesday is going to become relevant. Wednesday is going to be significant. Hello. Thursday can become powerful. Friday, with the exception of a football game. No, just kidding. <laughs> Friday can be awe-inspiring and wonderful because we are the church. And we are living and breathing and moving with the power of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with vital relationships with each other that are demonstrating and manifesting and declaring the kingdom of God. Father, in Jesus' name, stand with me. Father, in Jesus' name. We ask you, Holy Spirit, and we say, what is it that you're speaking to me today? And Lord, I ask that by revelation, wisdom and revelation, that you would begin to cause every blindness, every veil, every imagination, anything that obscures us from being able to see you, we ask God that you would help us to see clearly. And we know that when we see you clearly, we see others clearly. And I pray, God, that as you begin to give us and reestablish us in the truth, what it means and the value of the truth of what it means to be the church 
to be the fellowship, to be the people of God, to be known by God, to be known by His name, to be given titles and positions and inheritance and authority established in an irrefutable covenant. God, let us stand today ready to be your people. And so, Father, we just say, let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every sin. So if there's issues that we have with people today because we knew them according to the flesh, because we lost sight of who they were in you, God, let us quickly, 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 quickly deal with that. Get it out of the way. Let every obstruction, every stumbling block, everything that is just... Put my spiritual life on pause, my maturity, my growth on delay, my destiny on delay. Let us get it out of the way. And Father, I pray, God, that this church would have a quantum spiritual leap forward. And Lord, we know that you've you've spoken about maturity and you've spoken about identity. And God, here we are hitting that thing again today. God, I pray that every single person of the sound of my voice, if they belong to you and have been called by you and named by you, I pray that there would be just this spirit of royalty that sweeps over them, God. A a spirit of dignity that comes upon them. That they would no longer give themselves to the things that they give themselves to. And Lord, they would be awakened to that sense of birthright. Oh, man of God. Oh, woman of God. Rise up, daughter. Rise up, son. Rise up, family of the Most High God. And we call forth your sense and purpose of royal dignity in this nation in this city, in this region. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. May every other identity, may other any other false identity, let it be broken off of them. Every label, everything that has relegated them to insignificance, God, I pray that it would be broken now. Every spirit of inferiority, every spirit of unworthiness, every spirit of intimidation. We break off of you today in Jesus' name. You belong to God. God has spared you. God has redeemed you. God has called you. God has known you in his foreknowledge before the foundations of the earth and said, that one is mine. You cannot have her. You cannot have him. He is mine. God, let that sense of your heart and your hand be heavy upon us. Awaken. Some of you have been in hibernation. Awaken this morning. Awaken. Awaken to your destiny. You are called the anointed of God. Stand forth, anointed ones. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. Bless you.